ask you to turn with me, please, to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1. I've been impressed. I might add to that I've been under-impressed of something in the past year or two, and I hope with the help of God to speak on this verse throughout the conference in Philippians chapter 1. And just as kind of a, an opening, the Apostle Paul is writing to the saints in Philippi. He had spent some time there in the gospel. He had reached them. You know the story. Many of you know the story from the, the book of the Acts. Paul was very concerned about the Christians in Philippi. As good as they were, as deeply as they loved him, and as graciously as they had acted toward him, and as kind and generous as they were to him, and as much as this letter, this epistle, is a, is a large kind of a thank you letter, and, and it's an epistle marked by, by so much joy, as much as this group of believers in, in Philippi um, was not dealing with doctrinal error, or not dealing with, with ethical and moral dilemmas like they were at Corinth, as, as much as all of that is, is seen here, Paul had enough experience with the care of all the churches to know that it doesn't take long for even a good group of believers, a good, sound, solid, doctrinally morally behaving group of believers. It wouldn't take long for them to become infected with the wrong. Now, I'm saying that on purpose to be able to say this, because Paul realized that soon it wouldn't be long when they would not be in fellowship with one another. You see, the verse we're going to read here in a second, Paul is is greatly concerned about this group, this testimony, this, this called out company, he is greatly concerned that they will behave in such a way that will match their message. Or he is calling for consistency in their commitment. I'm kind of line up, trying to line up some, some alliteration here. He is calling for integrity in their inner workings. He is calling for credibility in their conduct. And if you know the chapter, you know what verse we're about to look at. You see, this verse is extremely rich. It hits at the very heart of the need for the Christians there in Philippi to behave themselves in the way that God has designed. This verse that we're about to read is here for us to see the correct behavior of a fruitful fellowship of folks and friends and families that were about to unfold. I'm saying that specifically for a purpose. I came home from Ontario a few weeks ago. It was the first time in a long time I had been gone from home that long. I don't like to be gone that long. And so it had been about a month since I had seen my family. And it was my daughter's birthday. So I went out and picked up the cake. It was sitting on the counter after school. I have four grandchildren. They all came to the house. My, my grandson, my oldest grandson, was sitting at the island doing his homework. He's 14. And my daughter's birthday was about to take place, waiting for the, the guys to come. And I looked at the cake, 
and I'm leaning against, waiting for the coffee to brew. And this is what hit me. I said this to, to them in the home last night. Oh, by the way, my daughter was 34. And I looked at that cake, and I looked at the kids, and I thought to myself, where? Where have all the years gone? And because of what was happening that day, the day before, and because of some of the emails I had gotten and phone calls that I had to respond to, you'll get the drift. When the very next thought that came through my mind was this, where have all the Christians gone? Now, I can say this because a number of years ago, I spoke at an Easter conference. It was 1982. And I had to speak to the children at that conference. And one of the brethren who was manning the plates, counted out over 600, sat and listened to the the children's meeting, the, the Sunday school aspect of that conference. And he told me how many that ate and how many that maybe went out for lunch. And he said that how many had broken bread for the chairs they had sat around the circle and how they counted the empties. It was a staggering number. This was in Manchester, Connecticut, not too far from the area that I grew up in in Massachusetts. That was 1982. I hadn't gone back to that area. That was the year my wife and I were married. But I was back there for gospel meetings in that area in 1996. Now, this is no slam on anyone or any area, but look at what happened. As I attended that conference from 82 to 96, 72 people broke bread. And so when we look at a verse like this that we're about to read, and we see Paul writing to the church at Philippi, this, this fellowship and all the inner workings that took place that God had used by the power of the Spirit of God to reach in and save those people, that woman with the, with the soothsayers and the, the jailer and his family and all these people, and now Paul is gone, and in his absence, he's writing back and he says, I want to give you the correct behavior of a fruitful fellowship of friends and families and folks that are about to unfold because Paul knew something was coming. And even though there's no real big deal of a problem going on here doctrinally, and even though there was no real ethical problems going on like there were at Corinth, what was happening at Philippi that actually comes to fruition by people's names in chapter 4, what was happening there? Paul wanted to stop it, and he wanted to say, I want to tell you what the correct behavior is of a fruitful fellowship of folks and friends and families that is about to unfold. Let me tell you, he says. And by the way, I've got to stop here. It's great to see young people. When I was younger, and I heard somebody mention from a conference platform about the behavior of believers in a group of believers together, collectively, The first thing I used to think of was, what color am I wearing? What color shoes do I have on? Is my hair combed right? This has got nothing to do with that. Nothing. Let's read together at verse 27. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Listen to what Paul reads. This is the only verse we're going to read. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. It's going to fit into what our brother's been speaking. That whether I come and see you, or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast, firm, 
in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. I can just imagine that Paul, when he dipped his feathered quill in a little bowl of ink and started to write that he paused a long time before he wrote these words. And I'm telling you that for a reason. Because if you were a writer, I am not a writer. I've been asked four or five times in the past two years to write a book on the 26 months we spent in a hospital and all the events that took place around our son's injury and those that we came to know and those that came to know the Lord Jesus. And I looked at that one brother in particular who's an editor, and I said, I am not a writer. He said, you don't have to write. He says, you can just talk into a microphone. And I said, you don't want to see that. So I'm not a writer, but when I read about writing, there are words that are put into sentences in a position that give the emphasis. That's the same way in our language, but more so in this language. And so when Paul wrote to the Christians at Philippi, he chooses his wording particular. That's why we just read these words, only let your conversation be. Or let me read it to you. In another version, it says this. It says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That word only, even though that word is used in our New Testament about 60 times, that specific word, it's only used twice in this position. It's, Greek scholars will tell you it's called the emphatic or the, the crucial emphatic position. The positioning of the word gave it this idea. It stands for one essential issue. I want you to grab this, especially those of us here. Do you like that? Those of us that are young. I, uh, I was joking with Peter because Peter sent an email out to some of us. You see, uh, I fall in that category. I'm one of the 11 in the states that's under 60. One more to go in this year. And uh, it was very uh, my wife, I was telling Peter yesterday, I said, my wife and I were sitting down and I got the email and I, I started laughing. I read it to my wife and she burst out laughing because we had just come from Sam's Club and uh, we were to spend seven days consecutive, 24 hours a day with the care of our son. His wife had to be away. And I went to Sam's and I hadn't shaved and all my hair grows in gray. And I, uh, I left my membership card on the edge of the register there. And I was going away with the, with the cart, and the woman reached for my card, and she handed it to my wife, and she said, Ma'am, you forgot your dad's card. <laughs> well, I didn't hear her say that. And my wife was laughing fairly hard, and she's a very quiet woman. And when I walked away, she told me what that woman said. I wanted to go back to her. Listen, you know, it's so nice to see young faces here. But I, I want to I tell you something. When Paul writes to Philippi and he uses this kind of language and he puts a word so crucially emphatic, he wants them to know this is the essential issue. There's something here that's key, and it's only used one other time. And for those of you who'd like to know what it is, it's used in Galatians chapter 2 when it talks about James and Peter and John being pillars, right? And it talks about how they gave to Barnabas and Paul the, the right hands of fellowship. And then it says this, only, Paul said, that we should remember the poor, which Paul said we were eager to do, right? And so you follow Paul's missionary journeys, and what was he doing? Taking a collection for the poor saints at Jerusalem, because he never forgot the crucial, emphatic aspect of this word, only. Like, listen, Paul says to Philippi, 
Only let your conversation be or only conduct yourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. It stands for one essential issue. This is important, he says, a worthy behavior. Now, I, wanna, I want us to, to notice something here. Paul, Paul, is, Paul is saying, by the way, I don't assume that I'm going to get through this at all. Matter of fact, I have just this verse from my three sessions at the conference. And if we can, we'll go maybe into chapter 2 and look at what Paul says about this behavior. But I've been so impressed with this. You know, I was just in Ontario, Southern Ontario, having meetings and in the ministry on Lord's Days, the four Sundays that we were there. I made a comment, and some of the brethren, uh, we talked about it afterwards. I said, you know, I, uh, I feel very young. But when I started in gospel work back in the 70s, 1980 was a, the first time we had gospel tent meetings with Gene Higgins, up where my wife and I were building a home in 1980 in New Hampshire. From 1980 to 1990, in that decade, we had lots of children's meetings, helped and pushed along by our brother Joseph Procopio, who was long in heaven, and he pushed us young men to, to work in children's work. We had 100 young people in the afternoons. A whole Sunday was taken up. You packed your sandwiches, the worship in the morning and the Sunday school, and then out to the projects, and you picked them all up and brought them in. And we were busy in the gospel. We didn't know what we were doing. But we were busy. And I thought of that decade from 1980. I was married in 82. And then, and, and then the years that followed, a, a lot of gospel work, a lot of gospel work. And the different places we went to help. And in 1990, when we were commended to the gospel work 28 years ago, I looked back. And having spent so much time in the hospital, I actually made a record of the places I had been to. 93 different groups of believers, just like you have here. And I'm almost ashamed to tell you about those that no longer exist. It's well over a dozen. They're just gone. You think it's important? Paul wanted the saints at Philippi to understand something. It is most important, he says, that our conduct... Now, let me, let me just jump into this word, because this is really... This is really beautiful to show to us how the Spirit of God guided Paul to use words that were key in the culture. Key in the culture. Listen to what he says. He says, let your conversation be, four words in our English Bible, or conduct yourselves, two words in another English translation. Those words are one word. And the word that he chose that is only used twice in the New Testament is a very unique word from which we get part of it, politics. And the word actually means this. It means a uh, a free state or a citizen of a free state. So when Paul says, only conduct yourselves, he is getting across this. He said, I want you, and let me, let me try and emphasize this, at the root, the root, I hate to say derivative, but that's the word, at the root of this word, in its original meaning, it meant to behave as a citizen of that free place, that free state. So I want to I try and, and portray this. Paul's writing to Philippi. They knew this word. It fit their culture. He said, I want you to conduct yourselves in a manner that would be proper behavior for a citizen. And by the way, he's not talking about a citizen of earth or of Philippi. He's talking about being a citizen of heaven. You've come to know Christ, he says. You belong to God, he says. You belong to the family of God. And here you are in Philippi. He says, and this is the correct, the correct behavior of a fruitful fellowship. And before you unfold, he says, I want to give you three things that are the correct behavior. 
We'll get to those in a minute. But when he chose this word, let me just say it this way. This word was spoken once by Paul. He said it once, and he wrote it once. When he said it, I hope this makes an impact on us for what is going to follow this because of who they were at Philippi and where they were from Rome. I hope you follow the analogy here. Paul, it was very clear to them. When Paul stood before the council in Acts chapter 23, verse 1, listen to what he says. He looked at them intently at the council, and he said, Brethren, I have lived. That's the word, have lived. I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. That's what he said to the council in Acts 23. And that's the same word. And that word is never used again in Scripture until here. And I can't say the word. It doesn't really matter. But listen to what what Paul says here. So uniquely chosen by him and by the Spirit of God because it was... uh, How do we say this? Philippi was a Roman colony. Philippi, if you look at the maps in the back of your Bible, Philippi was 800 miles from Rome, especially if you use the road systems. And it was a, it was a small-scale version of Rome. That's what Philippi was. And uh, to, to be a Roman citizen to the, to the people that lived in Philippi was really the embodiment of human dignity. They were proud to be called Romans, even though they didn't live in Rome. Catch the, catch the analogy, right? It's, uh, you see, not only did, did they take great pride in the fact that they were a Roman city-state, free-state colony, not only that, but it spoke of their protection. It spoke of of their high esteem in the eyes of Rome. Catching the analogy here. It spoke of their culture, (laughs) if you will. Let me look at it this way. Even when Paul went to Philippi, and you would have to go back to to Romans 16, because in in Romans, uh, in Acts 16, in Acts 16, listen to what the people at Philippi said. Now, these are unbelievers, right? I just want to try to grasp this concept that he was conveying to them as far as the correct behavior, what it means in a local fellowship, a body of believers, a called-out company. Our correct behavior to to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, he says. I want you to understand something. They grab Paul, and they grab Silas, and they bring him to the magistrates. And what do they say? They said, these men, these Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. And they had never seen Rome. The people that lived in the city of Philippi, 800 miles away. Now listen, I flew here the other day, and I got a lot of miles. And I'm flying over the mountains, and I'm looking out the window, and I'm thinking to myself, what must have been like in those days to try and travel from Rome to Philippi and back? It had been ridiculous. Eight, they never saw the place. And yet, listen to this. I want you to try and grasp this. They claimed to be Romans, even though they didn't live in Rome. They had all the rights and privileges of Roman citizenship. And living in a Roman colony, they never forgot who they really belonged to. Rome was their homeland. And they had never been there. 
Do you ever think about your homeland? I think about it every day. I kissed my son on the forehead the other day. As I was walking out, we were with him for 24-7, all the care in and out of the hospital, rehab facilities. And I kissed him on the forehead and I said, Doug, I'm flying over the other side of the country to Vancouver. I said, if I don't see you here, I will see you in heaven. And I said, you and I are going to run up and down the streets of gold. And he started to cry. And I walked out the house every day. We should be thinking of our homeland. And every day, we should have a behavior that matches our message. It's consistent with our commitment. Listen, listen to this here. I want, I, want you to, I want you to catch this. The people that lived in Philippi spoke the Roman language. The people that lived in Philippi wore the Latin Roman clothes. They called their magistrates by Latin or Roman names. They insisted on being Roman. And they were deeply into Roman citizenship with everything that it meant. And to these ancient Greek-speaking citizens of a free state, it was not just a place to live. There was such a pride in that. And whatever... (laughs) Whatever your place was there, you were proud of that place. Whatever, uh, however people looked at you and viewed you for what you did, you did everything that you did for the good of the society. Now, that's changed, right? That's, that's kind of foreign. Back then, originally, if you, especially if you go and you start researching the history of this city and the history of what it meant to be a Roman colony and how those people were proud of it and what they wore, what they said, how they spoke, man, it was like, I am a Roman Have you ever been there? No. Have you ever seen a Colosseum? No. They didn't have photographs. Listen, this was a proud bunch of people knowing I belong to Rome. It was in their minds, the the idea that to be an individual citizen, they developed their abilities, they they developed their their skills and their talents. Every success was not for themselves, but it was for the sake of the community. That was how they lived. Mutuality, interdependence, the pride of the city-state was the issue. And he said, why did you spend five or seven minutes on that? Because we don't understand it. Paul knew they understood it by using one word. Only let your conversation be. Only conduct yourselves. Paul, Paul's writing to them as, as citizens. Now listen. You ever hear somebody say something and just snaps and it's just clear, right? This rang so clear in the mind of a Philippian, especially a believer. Paul was using that word that we have translated into our language. And what he was really saying was, I want you to know that the main central issue in a fellowship of believers is to behave in such a way That you live, I have lived, that you live as a citizen of heaven. Full of meaning. Live, Paul was saying. Catch this now. We'll get into this. We won't get into it just now, maybe tomorrow. He says, I want you to live for the good of others, not yourselves. Live consistent with the values of that state. Live for heavenly values. Chapter 3, he says it right out in plain English. Our citizenship is in heaven. And you know something? You and I, as believers, we are called. This is our calling, by the way, brethren. 
If I had the time, I'd put it on an overhead and I'd show you in every single of the epistles written to a, a church, like the church at Corinth and the churches of Galatia, every single time Paul brings up the subject that we're going to be touching on. This is a, it's a very unique thing. He, he's, he's calling on them to live in partnership with others, to live as a member of a spiritual kingdom, namely the local church. Pardon if you don't like the word. The scripture is filled with this word. As citizens that are governed by God, governed by righteousness and faith and love and service and worship for each other. Colossians says it very clearly, doesn't it? That through the gospel, you and I have been translated out of that kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. We, we have been made citizens of a new community, a spiritual fellowship. Dare I say, the heavenly church. You say, where'd you get that from? Well, let me read it to you from the Bible. Hebrews 12, the writer says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God. Listen, Paul said, this isn't just a a Sunday school picnic, he says. I want you to understand something. He says, it's absolutely essential that we understand that guided by the Spirit, what Paul is saying is the bottom line in Christian life is I must conduct myself as a citizen of heaven, not of a world that is passing incredibly quickly. So, how does a citizen of heaven conduct themselves how do i as a believer gathered locally because i can't be gathered universally i live locally you live locally and you gather with believers in the name of the lord jesus christ as a testimony to his name honoring him and all that we've even been hearing in our work our outreach which is so integral in this verse how listen to what he says in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. What a powerful, powerful phrase. I should be in the practice of my life what I am in position. He's talking about consistency. He's talking about constancy. That's what's in view here. He says, I want you to be this way, whether I'm there or not, he says. Whether I'm, whether I'm over here or absent or there, he says, I want you to know you've always obeyed. Not only, he says later, not only in my presence, but in my absence. And so what, what he wants to get across is this. A Christian loses all their credibility when we, don't, when we profess one thing and we do another. And the local testimony to the Lord Jesus loses when the believers of that fellowship act that way as their representatives. It's really, it's really something. You know, many, many gatherings of Christians have become absolutely ineffective. They have become powerless as representatives of the gospel of Christ because their conduct has become tainted. Paul is going to encourage them here. He's he's wanting them to know, he says, the gospel of Christ, the manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That meant more to them than I think it does to us. That message that came to them, that delivering, emancipating power, they had been pulled, some of them, from the power of darkness, and now they've been translated into the kingdom of God's dear son, taken from death to life, from sin unto righteousness. And this is not a gospel meeting, so we're not going to go on in that. Listen, he says, when when a believer lives out that reality, the world sees it. And when we don't, they see that too. 
more than we know. We have become citizens of a, of a vastly greater free state than, than anything like Philippi. Worthy conduct. What did Paul say to the Christians in Corinth in his last letter? He said, if any man be in Christ is a new, new creation. He wanted them to, to live that out. And so Paul adds, so that whether I come or uh, I see you or remain absent, I want to hear about you. Paul was going to tell them that uh, this is going to display their conduct. So I want you to, I want you to notice with me three things. Um, we'll just touch on the first one, maybe. It starts with a... He's, I, I, wanna, I want you to know what worthy behavior is. Worthy behavior is not making sure my shoes are tied just right and my, my tie is, is centered on my collar or whatever. I'm joking. That's not, nothing to do with it. Worthy behavior... How am I to understand it? How am I to realize that my behavior as a believer locally in the local testimony is a behavior that is worthy of the gospel of Christ? Listen to what he says here. Verse 27 again, he says, Whether I remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm. I want to stop right there. Or you are standing fast. He says, this is what I want to hear. But this is extremely interesting to me. You know why? It's one word again. I'll tell you what the word is. It's an easy one to pronounce. It's the word stecho. And it's only used eight times in the New Testament, seven times in the epistles. And Paul pulls on it here. And he says, I want to hear about you, he says. And here's what I want to hear. I want to hear that you are stecho. Yet you are standing firm. And this word meant a whole lot to them because they understood it. And the word was a military word, and it meant that one was a, a soldier who would not budge from his post. There he is. We've all seen the pictures. I've never been there, but you see the pictures of those men dressed in red with those big top, you know, furry hats, and they're standing there, you know, and they've got their, their rifle there, and they're standing at their post. Now, the pictures that I've seen in video clips, the eyes are just glazed. They almost look a, like a wax figure. The idea here is a soldier who is at his post and everything is at stake and his eyes are open and he's standing firm. Now, I, I'm going to tell you what Paul means with this and, and try and develop it because this is incredibly precious. Let me just stop here and ask you a question. Are you part of a local testimony to the name of the Lord Jesus? Would you like to know that you are living a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ, which flows from that body. It starts right here. Listen to what Paul says. No, he's basically saying, the soldier who's standing at his post, and I just, it just flashed through my mind. I don't have this in my notes, but I remember getting phone calls from my son by satellite phone. He was deployed all over the world with the United States Marine Corps. He was in special forces, and one of their forces, they had, they had abducted uh, some terrorists. He was on a group called a, an anti-terrorism team. And they worked behind the Navy SEALs and they captured these uh, terrorists and they took them to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. And some of them were extremely high-profile terrorists. And so it was their responsibility, uh, the FAST Company, Fleet Anti-Terrorism Security Team, to secure these men, to work with those who ran the prison at Guantanamo Bay, and to make sure that no one, no matter how infectious or insidious in any way, shape, or form by water, land, or sea that anyone would come in and try and steal those terrorists back to their terroristic ways. 
And my son was on post, standing. And the equipment that they had was incredible. I could show you pictures. Night goggles. Kevlar chests. All kinds of armament and protection. And he said, if you were caught sleeping at your post, you just didn't want to be caught, he said. Now, get the picture here. That's the word that Paul chose. He said, I want to hear about you, he says, that you are standing firm. No compromise with the enemy. No compromise with error. No compromise with sin. An unyielding maintenance of their testimony for the word of God and for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's getting at here. He says, I, I don't want you to move in terms of conduct from where you are to stand. Now, I want to I borrow something for a minute because in researching this and then looking at a lot of commentaries on this, this is what I came up with, and I didn't really understand this or grasp this until just this week, that most likely, I can't say this dogmatically, but most likely, and I would love my brethren to help me with this, that the Christians in Philippi had read the epistle to the Ephesians. Most likely. He would have to go to, you have to read, skim through Ephesians and say, yes, that's a very big possibility. Written from the same prison at the same period of time. But with all that aside, I want, to, I want you to try and grasp something. Because, you know, this word was used again. Paul uses it again in this epistle. And I mean, let me read it to you. It's in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, he says, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown. He says, so stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And he changes the word by making it a verb that's, in their language, it's called an imperative verb. And all that means is it's a command or an instruction. And so he moves from the word here, stand firm, and he goes to it in chapter 4 again. And this time, it's an instruction. Because he's given him the antidote. He's given him the answer in chapter 2 and 3. By the time he gets to chapter 4, and he's about to address the two sisters by name who were doing this, you know, there was a problem there. They weren't standing firm together. We're going we're gonna to see that. And now catch this. Here they are. Here's these, these Christians, and they're standing firm. But I want to just take your mind for a minute. And I, it's very interesting. I, I don't see the brother from here. But last night in the prayer meeting, which I thought was a very warm wonderful prayer meeting, followed by a very warm, tender word of ministry about our, our Savior. And in the prayer meeting last night, one of our brethren prayed, and he quoted this verse. He quoted from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. And these are the words, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Now, just hang on to that for a minute. You say, what, what are you getting at here? Paul is writing to the Christians in Ephesus, and he uses the same term. Stecco, he says. Let me read it to you. Verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm. Now, I want you to catch this, okay? The idea is that you're standing firm against the wiles of the devil. Now, the word for wiles, or some translations say schemes, the word there means this. You can look it up in your strongest concordance. It means trickery. By lying in wait. And so here's Paul writing to these people he so dearly loved. I love it. You read, I skimmed through this, this book the other day just fast reading. You know, what I, you know what just jumps out of you? He says, every time I think of you, I give thanks to God. Do you do that? 
When I think of you, do I say, oh, thank God for brother so-and-so? No, I sometimes, yeah, yeah, right, we don't. Think of this. Paul said he's, he loved them, he cared for them. He's not scolding them. He's not pulling out the proverbial two-by-four to bonk them because of, of their horrible misbehavior. They didn't look right. Paul is saying, I want you to conduct yourselves. I want you to behave in a worthy manner of the gospel of Christ. He says, I want you to understand something. He said, there is an enemy, and by trickery, he's lying in wait, and I want you to stand firm. And he uses that word again in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, stand firm against the trickery of lying in wait by the evil one. Listen, take a look at the empty seats. How many years have you folks been using this auditorium? Can someone tell? Brother Wilson, how many years have you been using this auditorium? A dozen? 20 years? Has there ever been a time when these seats were full? Or more full? Okay. Now, I'm just using that. I don't know. I've never been here. Just using that as an illustration. Think about this. Paul loved them. He cared for them. And what was about to work into a place that he had worked into so much of his life and so much of the gospel of Christ was was very touching to him. And he wanted them to understand something. There's an enemy. I want to go through this really quick because this is is really powerful. Paul says in in Ephesians chapter 6, three times he uses this word, stand firm. You know what it has to do with? Resisting. Verse 12, he talks about our struggles not against flesh and blood. Verse 13, he says, Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stecco, stand firm. And it's not enough. He picks up his pen, and he writes it again. It's the very next word. Verse 14, he says, Stand firm, therefore, having your... And then he goes through the armor. You say, what what, what are you getting at here? The believers in Philippi needed to understand something. The first and foremost, number one essential issue to correct behavior in a fruitful fellowship of folks and friends and families that were about to unfold starts starts right here. I need to realize that I need to stand firm in resistance, resisting the trickery of the enemy. And it can come in shapes and forms that you could never possibly imagine. Man, it's powerful. Doctrinally and in behavior. You know why? They go hand in hand. In order to stand firm, Paul says, I want you to stand firm in resistance. And you can't resist like a soldier. You can't use a military term like stecco and expect them to stand there with a robe on. And so to to borrow, very briefly, to borrow what he wrote to Ephesus that I believe the Christians at Philippi read, he says, I want you to have your loins girded with truth. You say, what does that mean? Listen, I'm not here to speak about the armor. It's a fabulous subject for a whole conference. Someday I'd like to get a mannequin and take all the armor, start with the, you know, work it right up and show the whole piece that Paul was getting at because they were Romans. They they saw Roman guards. He was surrounded by Roman guards. He was in in a prison and he, he saw the picture. He's looking. He's looking from the feet to the helmet. He's looking at the shield. He's looking at the, the breastplate. He's looking at it. He says, first of all, he says, I want you to know this. If you're going to stand firm in a local body of believers, and you're going to have a worthy conduct, a behavior that is fitting to the gospel of Christ, the first thing is this. Loins girded with truth. And it, it simply means this very briefly. That is a spiritual commitment to the truth of God as it is found in its context. The moment I take a text out of its context to make my pretext, 
The enemy is there lying in wait in trickery, and I lived it. From 2006 to 2011, I lived amongst a group of people, Hutterites, and their whole life was based on a text out of context so much that it was damning their souls. And they had the Bible. Do we do that, brethren? Do we take a text and lift it out of its context? Paul says, I want you to know, in your firm stand, in resisting the evil one. He says, I want you to know something. He says, truthfulness in its context. That's the word of God. He says, you got to have on the breastplate of righteousness. What a fabulous subject. I wish we had time to get into it. This word that is used throughout the New Testament, it simply means this. The state of him who is as he ought to be. Strong's Concordance. What a fabulous thing. The moment you came to know the Lord Jesus, you entered into a state as God intended you to be. And what he's getting at is this. It speaks of a life of righteousness, a life of purity, and a life of holiness, and a life that is lived in light of the gospel of Christ. And he says, to have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, you would be a horrible soldier if you were barefoot. You say, what does that have to do with the gospel of peace? Very simple. That is, you know that God is at peace with you and you are at peace with God through the Lord Jesus, through the work once and for all done and ongoing in your life. And you know that God is on your side and you're able to stand firm your ground knowing that he will defend you through his word, come what may. Wow. And he quickly goes, he says, and take the shield of faith. Take it, he says. Say, what, 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 do you, what do you mean? Not only do you believe God, not only is my, are my loins girded with truthfulness. He said, I want you to know this. This is the ongoing state of preparedness every morning. An ongoing state of preparedness. You take the shield. And what about that shield? It's a shield of faith in him, not me. I don't get up and take the shield of my faith. I take the shield of faith in him. You know Why? Because the enemy is firing off the arrows. And I don't know about you. You ever been attacked by the enemy? Whew, I love archery. I have bows and I have a bow that's older than me. All wooden. And I love firing that thing. Take my grandsons out. We put an apple way off on a styrofoam head. And I said, that's William Tell's son. Don't hit his head. And it's pretty hard to do. Can you imagine the enemy standing back and he's got the archery and he dips the tip of that tar arrow into the flame and he's firing it right at you. And it could come as difficulty. Been there? It could come as doubt. It could come as discouragement. It could come as delay. It could come as depression. And the enemy has got a quiver full of flaming arrows and he fires them at you every day and he's lying in wait by trickery. And I must take the shield of faith. I didn't mean to spend time on this, but it means a whole lot to me. But take the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation. Oh, he, Paul says, this is, this is the mind. The, the, the idea of, in my mind, the only confidence I have is in God's glorious ability to keep me until the day he takes me home to heaven. And he says, and, and you stand with, with what? What do you have in your hand? The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And I often think of the words of that hymn, with with Christ in my heart and his word in my hand, I travel in haste through an enemy's land. Listen, Paul's not joking around here. 
He knows what has happened in other places where he preached the gospel and he left and in came the trickery and in came the one lying in wait and what was once a fruitful fellowship unfolded. The saints in Philippi needed to be unmovable in their stand. That's the first thing. The first thing Paul wanted them to understand. You be unmovable in your stand. Taking on the armor in resistance to the enemy, doctrinally, morally. And we look at the one who's in the center of it all, the Lord Jesus Christ. My life, your life, to be lived in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. I'll close with this. The last time that word is used, out of the seven times that it's used in the epistles, Paul uses it one last time. <clears throat> Second Thessalonians chapter 2. man came up to me recently. We were in conversation and he said, he said, yeah, that's what I mean. I said, what are you talking about? He said, that's why. That's why I hold fast to the traditions. He was referencing a tradition that we don't need to talk about, just a tradition. And I said, what do you... And he opens his Bible, and he had it underlined, and he reads me these words. Therefore, brethren, he said, stand fast and, and hold the traditions which you have been taught, by, whether by word or our epistle. He said, Paul wrote to the saints in Thessalonica for the last time, and he wanted them to, to hold fast to traditions. I said, really, that's not what my Bible says. And I pulled out my phone, I opened up my app, And I touched each word, and it showed it in the original. Let me read the original. Therefore, brethren, stecco. Stand firm. Retain what I transmitted to you by teaching, whether by word or letter. And I looked at that brother and I said, Paul was telling the saints at Thessalonica, forget your man-made traditions. I, by the Spirit of God, transmitted to you by teaching God's word. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 2? We have the mind of Christ. God was giving to the apostles his word. They were writing it down. Paul said, listen, I transmitted to you God's word. And God's word is what you retain and what you stand firm in. That is the number one thing, the most essential issue for a fellowship of believers to maintain a behavior that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. You want to know what the second one is? You'll have to come back tomorrow. It's fabulous. It's fabulous. But it's the most missing ingredient in every testimony that I've been in in 38 years. It's missing. And where it's not missing, there's a warmth, and there's a fellowship, and there's a, there's a camaraderie, and there's a blessing, and there's a power. It's a fabulous thing. So, by God's help, we'll look at that tomorrow. Let's, uh, I've been asked to pray and give thanks for the food, so let's take a moment and bow our heads. Father, we are so grateful today for the message, the gospel of Christ Father, we pray that our lives would match that message. We pray that our inner workings, all that we deal with, will match what God has worked in by his Spirit. Bless the word that has been spoken today. Bless the food that has been prepared for us. Oftentimes we, we look at the scriptures that are being handled and we wonder... Have we done it any justice? We pray that it might touch us what we heard from Peter today, how we are to be active in gospel work, not just 
gathered into our own traditional way of doing it. Times are changing, Father. Help us to change with them. Help us in so doing to honor our Lord Jesus. We pray that everyone that is here today would be built up and nurtured in these things, that we will be able to go home back to our respective places, being able to realize, you know what, we, we actually know from Scripture now what a worthy behavior is. Might we be able to carry it out? Might it be a, a, a bolster to our spiritual life? And might it be able to be seen by others? And be, before or beyond all that, may the Lord Jesus get all the honor and all the glory that is worthy of his name. We ask thy blessing in his precious name. Amen.